All right, we're in our study on the Bible lists, and we've been doing this uh, uh, different topics. Tonight we're on the second part of the 37 proofs of the deity of Christ. And uh, I have more than 37 verses in each, well, total in this study, but the topics that are covered under that or the subtopics deal with the deity of Christ. And we've looked at that. Um, uh, previous to this was the humanity of Christ, that he was fully man. Um, and then we have gone to this section showing where the scripture teaches also that he's fully God, God the Son. And it's an important doctrine of the faith. It is a key doctrine of Christianity. And it's one of those that if someone denies the deity of Christ, they are considered uh, uh, to not be a Christian. That is in the early church. Uh, not only does the scripture teach that, but that was the doctrinal position of the early church and has been kept throughout the centuries. And uh, there are those that have might call themselves Christians and deny that and to do that is anathema. And so um, I just put that out there, very important doctrine, and it's something that the Scripture teaches, and yet something that many Christians, I don't think, fully appreciate necessarily, and when hopefully you do. You're here on a Sunday night, and I'm glad for that, um, and have been taught this. But uh, I would say that if you were to ask the average churchgoer out there on a Sunday morning or whatever, what do you know about the deity of Christ? And uh, that Christ was God, and some would have a hard time coming up with verses and stuff. And so I hope that's not you. And I hope that you're ready to give an answer in that, because there are those that will come to your door sometimes, knock on your door, and they don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he's just a created being, and maybe important, but not God. And to do so denies a volume of scripture. So we're going to look at that tonight. And again, before we uh, begin, let's just pray as God opens the scripture to us. Lord, we are grateful grateful for your word and as we look into it tonight teach us as only you can and help us to understand this not for just knowledge sake but that we would appreciate our savior even more and thank you lord for what you did that heaven came down to us because we couldn't go there on our own we thank you for that in jesus name amen as this, uh, i got to get my list up after I put that up here. Hold on. There we go. Last week we ended with uh, the, well, some of the attributes of God in, that is taught in Scripture. Remember the omniscience of God, all-knowing. And what was the other ones? He was also all-powerful. What's that? Omnipotent, right? And then he's all-present or omnipresent. And we looked at all these verses that dealt with that where Jesus... <clears throat> had those claims given to him and made those claims and the truth of the scripture portrays that and so we ended about halfway through our list and tonight I want to look at some other aspects of that prove his deity and uh, the first one here is in Hebrews chapter 1 and it's this idea of worship now the word worship means to ascribe worth to and ultimately, God is the only one who should be given our full worship, our worth in, uh, in that way. We, as we look to him and we say, you are worthy, O Lord. And the scripture lays that out, that God is the only one. To worship anything else or anyone else uh, is idolatry. And the Bible commands us that we are not to worship idols and not to put something before God. And yet we see where. In scripture, it is clearly taught that Jesus was worshipped. 
And we see here in Hebrews chapter 1, it says here, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's a quotation from the Old Testament, and it also shows a relationship. It doesn't show origin. It's not that there's a father who, who created a son, but rather there's always been a father, always been a son. And it is a denotation of relationship, and it's an eternal relationship. You go on to say this, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, this is not reference to the birth of Christ, but his resurrection and he's preeminent is really what the, the term means. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, why would Christ be given that designation of worship if he wasn't worthy of that worship as God? And it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire... But to the Son, he says. This is important. This is God, the quotation again, from the Old Testament. And from here, it's the Father speaking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So you here have, um, under Holy Spirit inspiration, the Father telling us through the scriptures that the Son is God. Does that make sense? I know that's a complicated verse to just start or a section there to jump into. But there are other indications of Christ's worship, some that are much more familiar. For instance, in the Christmas story, <clears throat> you remember the shepherds. They were in their fields and then uh, angels appeared to them and told them about the birth of the Christ. And it says, and suddenly... In Luke chapter 2, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Here the Lord tells them, indicates them, that there is one who is born in Bethlehem's manger. And they go, and the shepherds in their actions worship the Christ child. Um, You have the wise men who follow them sometime later, and they also. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it says these, these wise men were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Very important, the idea of worship. And again, they're not rebuked for this. Nobody there rebukes them. Um, And it is in keeping with what God had revealed. In the Gospels, you see where he's worshipped by different individuals. Uh, For instance, the, the leper who had a disease. Remember in Matthew chapter... Oh, actually, sorry, I think I... I didn't read this verse. That's, yeah, this was uh, the wise men again. And you notice it says that, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Again, indicating that. And then in Matthew 8, 2 is the leper. And it says, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, it's very important when you see the word Lord in the New Testament, Remember, the New Testament originally was written in, um, it was written in Greek. Now, 
Earlier, it may have been in some Aramaic, which was the common language that Jesus spoke and what the Jews spoke during that time, um, which is very similar to what we have in modern, or not modern Hebrew, but it's, it's out of, it's a Semitic language, essentially. But it was, a, when it was written down, um, obviously written in Greek, Greek was a very precise language. Um, Hebrew is not necessarily as precise, so they tell me. I'm not an expert in either one, but I, I've studied things enough to know how things work a little bit. And in the Old Testament, the, like the name for God, which appears in our English as Lord, Lord meaning Master, and uh, capital L-O-R-D is the name for Yahweh underneath that, and it's actually that, that word Lord was chosen to indicate his very name. But when you come to the New Testament, you just have the word Lord, and the word that is used in the Greek that is used with this, kurios, um, it's a word that would have, how do they put it like this, it, it, to those who would be reading that in the first century, when they would connect the word Lord, kurios, and attached to Jesus, it would be just as if you were saying Lord in the Hebrew, all right, and Jesus Christ. It was brought into Greek that way. It's similar to what we'd call, um, I guess the term would be branding, okay? When something takes on another name, but it means the same thing. For instance, back in the, well, this one here and back on that table over there, there's a box of Kleenex. And you say, well, what, what is a Kleenex? It's tissue. So when I say Kleenex, you know what I meant. Um, although it's not brand name Kleenex, it's probably the generic brand of whatever, it's a tissue paper. And I could have said, oh look, there are some tissues back there, you would have understood that. But you all understood, hey, there's a box of Kleenex, because we've branded something and brought it in. And the same is true when it comes to the word Lord in the Old Testament. And it's brought into the New Testament in kurios, the Greek. And people then would have understood when that term is used, it's re- referenced to God. And it's important because when they say the Lord Jesus Christ, they were also making him equal with God. And here this one says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he understood, this leper understood deeper theology than some of the religious rulers that were in that day. You have the Canaanite woman, right? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And when he spoke, this is a ruler, sorry, I got ahead of myself. When he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. There it is again, this ruler. And by the way, Jesus does not rebuke them. And I would say this because any Jew who was, uh, you know, an observant Jew, and if you'd say Jesus was just that, nothing more, would have immediately rejected any worship given to them because they knew that was a violation of the highest of laws, that you put another God before him. But he doesn't, which indicates that Jesus made, not only did he make those claims, but he did not deny those claims when people came to him and worshipped him. Does that make sense? All right. Here's uh, the woman, uh, the Canaanite woman, Matthew chapter 15. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's the Phoenician part of, today it would be modern day Lebanon. Um, And we know from the Old Testament, several passages, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that the Phoenicians, which were part of that Tyre and Sidon, the chief cities there, 
were doing very evil things, very wicked. And, you know, I would say this, that often sin will stay in something when it comes and it embeds itself in a society for generations and generations. And they have a hard time breaking free from that. You have this woman who comes and she's got a demon-possessed daughter. I, I believe a lot of them in that region were just given over to satanic activity. You know, there's still a lot of satanic activity in that same part of the world today. And I say that for the hatred that comes out of that right now. But look what it says. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and, look, worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Listen, the people of Tyre and Sidon um, understood, or that woman certainly did, better than some of the people that were there that should have known the scriptures and known who he was in those things. The next one, <clears throat> you have uh, the mother of, let me move ahead here, uh, mother of the Zebedees, right? The two sons of thunder uh, came to him with her sons kneeling down and asked something of him. That posture of the worship, you know, of kneeling down before someone, ascribing worth to them. And she indicates that by her actions. You have the blind man of Mark chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, this is the, I'm ahead of myself each time. The maniac, which was the demon-possessed man of the Gadarenes. When he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And here's a man who's demon-possessed, and he understood who was before him. And again, in each one of these cases, you will not find Jesus rebuking them at all. Because he indeed was worthy of their worship. And that's important. It was C.S. Lewis that proposed, and then Josh McDowell later on uh, in their writings, about Jesus being just a good man. That's A lot of times people will say that. They'll say, well, you know, I don't believe he was God, but I believe he was a great teacher. He was a, he was a good man, a moral man. And, and, and they made the argument, uh, C.S. Lewis in his writing on, on mere Christianity, and he writes on this doctrine, but he says, you know, only, uh, first of all, a good man would not make the claims that he was God um, unless he was a liar, because only a liar would make that claim, and that, that nullifies the fact he'd be a good man, because he'd be a liar. Or he was a crazy man, because only a crazy man would think that he's God, and there's lots of crazy people out there that think they're God. Or the third choice is the only other choice, he indeed is Lord. He indeed is God. And you have to wrestle with those three things. Is he just a liar? Is he a madman? Or is he indeed God? And I would say very clearly, indicated from the miracles of Christ and all the things that we know from, from Scripture and from history and everything else, that he indeed was God and is God. <clears throat> he was worshipped by the blind man. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Again, indication of that. 
He was worshipped by Thomas. Remember, we often call him Doubting Thomas, but he got it. He understood. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And some would dismiss that and say, Oh, that's just you know what people say when they're surprised. No. <laughs> he, was, he was saying, My Lord and my God. Very clear, just like that. Thomas understood who he was when he was able to see and feel the nail prints, uh, the, the marks on his hand and his side from the crucifixion. He understood. He was worshipped by Greeks that had come. These were Hellenistic Jews, and they had come for the feasts in John chapter 12. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. So they come up to worship God, and the very first thing they do, you see it in the next verse, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They understood, and they went to give their worship to him. He was worshipped by the apostles. Remember Peter, when he began to sink, and he said, Lord, save me. And the Lord saved him. And then they both got back in the boat. Jesus was walking on the water, right? In Matthew 14, 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And again, that term, Son of God, is, um, an, it's, it's again a, a relational thing. that it, It's a reference to his preeminent. You are looking at God. He is the Son of God. And the Son of Man also was a title of Christ. And that shows his humanity. The Son of God shows his deity. It's very simple. <clears throat> Other indications that he was God. Not only was he worshipped, but he forgave sin. And only God can forgive sin, right? And I will say that because only God forgives sin. You can go to no one else for forgiveness of sin. No man, no pastor no priest no uh, sacrament or ordinance or anything like that forgives your sin only jesus christ and it is through faith in him through his finished work of salvation and that's how you're saved by believing on the lord jesus christ and in matthew chapter 28 and again i had some other verses there this is about the the disciples worshiping him um, they held onto his feet there and Mark, where was I here? Um, jumped ahead of myself. Yeah, he forgave sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Then Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And, of course, they, the people around him, the religious leaders, took exception to that. In Mark chapter 2, verse 10, It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And that, I think, again, displayed it. It really meets people head on with their thinking. This is not just some healer or some prophet, but indeed was God himself. He judges. Only God really is the supreme judge, right? Yet Jesus was given that. 
John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. How about that? Matthew 18.11, He saves. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And that's not just lost in the physical realm, that's spiritual lostness. Only God can save the lost. He saves. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus gives eternal life. And I give them eternal life that they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Where is eternal life reside in the sense? It's in Christ. And really, we're sealed also by the Holy Spirit uh, unto the Father. And so the triune God keeps us in salvation. I'm glad for that. But Jesus is ascribed as one who saves. We have the early church, and what did they believe? Um, you come to the book of Acts, and I think it's very clear what they believed. You have the very first record of the first martyr, the first one to die, uh, which was Stephen. And when Stephen, in this first record of his martyrdom, uh, you have this long dialogue that he has. It's not that long, really. It's a lot shorter than my sermons. But when you read Acts chapter 6 and 7, you have the, the preaching of Stephen. And he was a man filled by the Holy Spirit, and he preaches a spirit-filled message. And at the end of it, you would think people would get saved. No, they didn't. They got angry. And that sometimes is a reaction to the truth. People don't like it. And they decided they were going to kill him by stoning him to death. And it says here, but he, that's Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. So what follows is direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's the place of honor. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. I think the reason they did it and chose that very moment is that in their hatred, the, the people who were persecuting Stephen believed he had just blasphemed against God and they needed no other statement. And they plugged their ears, probably already had plugged their ears spiritually already, and they ran at him with one accord. That's when unity is not a good thing. <laughs> and that's what they do. And it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying. And this is what Stephen's saying when he calls on God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit bears record of Stephen's words he being full of the holy spirit all right and he testifies that jesus is god then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice lord there it is again do not charge them with this sin and when he had said this he fell asleep in other words he he uh, his body died and he immediately entered into the very presence of god and there's a lot you could get from that passage some have said what is it like after death, you know? Well, I haven't been dead yet and haven't faced that. But do you suppose that, that at the time of our death that Jesus may indeed be welcoming us into his very presence? And being able to do that, 
because he's God. And we may indeed someday, if you're a believer, when you face death and you see the Son of Man, Jesus, God the Son, in all his glory, welcoming you at that very moment. What a great thing. Maybe you'll remember back to saying, oh yeah, it's so much better than what Jack Heron tried to explain. And I hope it is, because I can't, words couldn't even begin to explain what we're going to experience in the glories of heaven. We have others that called on him as God. In Acts chapter 8, verse 37, you have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that word, Son of God, it's a title given to Jesus Christ. And it denotes his deity, not, again, his origin, as some would like to equate. Paul believed in the fact that Jesus was God and taught that throughout his epistles. Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. The next most prolific writer would be Luke. He wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke. But all of the writers in the New Testament um, indicate that Jesus is God. Paul, there's many verses I could have chosen, but I'll, I'll look at a few. He refers to Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. And you say the firstborn, was he the first created? That's what some would teach. It's heretical. That's not the term. The firstborn of over creation means he's the Lord of creation. He's the one that rules it in that. And then <clears throat> by him all things were created. I would say when the Old Testament talks about God, the maker of heaven and earth, that's what the Bible says, that very phrase, God, the maker of heaven and earth, you come to the New Testament and you either have a problem, because here it says it's Christ who made everything. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In just a philosophical sense, if you were to argue for the existence of God, you would have to say, if everything came into existence from an all-powerful being, then that all-powerful being had to be there before those things. And Paul says Jesus was before, the Son was before all things. Jesus Christ says, in, all him, in him all things consist, the Greek word sunisteo, which means are sustained. He's the very superglue of the universe, as McGee says it. Titus 2.13, here, Titus writes, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that phrase, again, in the Greek is very clear when it says the appearing of our great God and the further description it follows, connected by the conjunction and Savior, Jesus Christ. What Titus writes there and is indicated in his letter um, as, as or to Paul writes here to Titus, he makes very clear that we are waiting for the appearing of the great God and his name is Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the 
flesh. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Paul believed that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. Man, that's great. Peter also believed that. <clears throat> in 1 Peter chapter 3, he writes there in verse 21, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. This is not the water baptism he's referring to, but we're talking about the identification with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's an identification, uh, spirit baptism, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you want a pure conscience, it only comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ or, or him, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And so all things are under his authority. By definition, he would be God. Peter understood that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is the... the you know, time um, when Peter, James, and John saw the glory on the mount of the transfigured Christ. And I believe he's making reference to that very time. He was one that saw that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So you have the father speaking and endorsing God the son, the triune God as, as well. And Again, Peter makes reference to that. The excellent glory. When he sees the glory of God, he sees the transfigured Christ. The book of Jude, just that one chapter book, right? And most of it deals with apostates, those who have, have gone away from the faith or those who never possessed the faith. And he, he warns the readers of his, his short writing about those who claim to be something that they're not, you know? And he warns us. But in the end of that, he can't help himself. Jude says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He ends with a doxology of praise to God, and he calls him God our Savior. James believed the same thing. James chapter 2 he says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. When James makes that connection, the Lord of glory, um, and again, he's, he's connecting that up, and um, he's making Christ equal with God. And then, of course, John himself, the Apostle John, the last of the apostles to depart from this earth to go to heaven. John is thought to have lived well into his 90s, maybe even up to 100 years old. Um, and he writes uh, the final book that is revealed to us, which is the book of Revelation. And he writes that having received that from uh, the Lord himself. But prior to that, he writes his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in 1st John, for example, 
chapter 5, verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John makes it very clear what he believed. He believed in the deity of Christ. Then you come to the book of Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 1, you have John receiving this vision from from heaven, from God. Uh, He's told to write these things down. But you have here in verse 17, when he sees the... The, this this glorified Lord who's before him, John does the right thing. He falls down. An indication he prostrates himself before this one. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is the same Christ, by the way, the same Jesus that John rested against at the Last Supper. Remember? The one whom Jesus loved, as in a brotherly love, a companion love. He was, he was that kind of a brother in that disciple. And yet, here he sees him in his glory and he's undone. A lot could be said about that, by the way. People talk about having Jesus encounters, you know. And that's been things, people look for these things and, or, or they do this or do that. Honestly, when people truly have an encounter with the Lord, they see themselves as who they are before a holy God and they fall down before him. That's over and over again in scripture. They worshiped. He's not rebuked. But I love what Jesus does here. The resurrected Christ. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's not saying he was the first created and he will be the last one around he's saying in the beginning i was there and in the end i'm still there he's making himself equal with god in that and look and you want to know who it is because he's called earlier as the almighty i am he who lives and was dead who who died and is now alive jesus jesus christ the lord jesus christ and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, the grave, hell, and of death. Think about that. Now, to show that John knew the difference, or was at least given the opportunity, didn't know the difference necessarily here, in Revelation chapter 19, an angel delivers a message to him. Now, if Jesus is just an angel, this, this whole passage throws that out. And there's other passages too, but John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. In other words, this glorified you know, angel appears to him, and the angel immediately rebukes him. Because he says, he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. In other words, this angel's bearing record of the same one that John is bearing record of, Jesus. And the angel says, don't worship me. Isn't it interesting that people want to worship angels? They want to worship the saints, and they want to worship everything but God. And it's idolatry. And yet, 
Here the angel clearly says, don't worship me. I'm just your fellow servant. See, they have their place, <clears throat> the hosts of heaven. They are there to serve the same God we serve. <clears throat> in different ministries. And then he goes on and he says it very clearly. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And those two things are connected to God and Jesus. And then he says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. <coughs> and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Who's that? It's Jesus. And his name is called the Word of God. Now John opens up his gospel account that he wrote years before that, identifying the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? Was with God, and the Word was God. And he identifies him in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He's the very communication of God. And John identifies And it's interesting that John introduces us first to Jesus Christ as the word, right? The logos in the Greek, the highest communication, the highest thought that you can send out is word. And he identifies that. And then in the end, in the book of Revelation, he also identifies him as the same one. And it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. In other words, the judgment of God that at that time will fall is the judgment of Almighty God. And who is doing that? The one whose vesture is dipped in blood. The one who is the one who was dead and is now alive. If you want to know further, this is how he wraps it up. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord of Lords. It's very clear that Jesus is equal with God, that he is God indeed. And we need to understand that and stand on that doctrine for sure in doing that hopefully that's helpful we'll pick another topic next time i'm glad you guys stuck with it here lord we are grateful for the word of god